It's uh, a tribute to not only the application of our students, but the quality of our guests, that we have upstairs and downstairs a pretty well-packed house uh, in a month notorious for lectures delivered to empty spaces. So congratulations to you all, but especially congratulations to our guests. As you can see, this is a joint Centre for the Study of Human Rights alumni lecture with the Crimes of War Project. The Crimes of War Project uh, we're delighted to be associated with. Uh, Anthony Dworkin on my far left uh, is, is director of the project and has helped in the planning and execution of this event. So we're very pleased that that's been possible. I am Connor Geerty. I'm the chair uh, tonight and also director of this, the Centre for the Study of Human Rights. Now, as you know, the topic is do war crime trials do more harm than good? And uh, the way we're going to uh, run things is as follows. Uh, we're going to ask uh, Richard Goldstone to commence, and he's going to speak for 30 minutes, uh, not about 30 minutes, 30 minutes more or less. We're going to try and stick carefully to time. And then Leslie Vinjamuri is going to speak for 15 minutes uh, in response. Richard Goldstone is... Uh, was a Justice of the Constitutional Court of South Africa. He's presently at Harvard Law School as a visiting professor of law there and has, of course, as is well known to people who are interested in this subject, been Chief Prosecutor of the United Nations International Criminal Tribunals for the former Yugoslavia and Rwanda. He's been involved in the inquiry on Kosovo, has very many other uh, activities, he's been on many committees, he serves on the boards of Human Rights Watch, Physicians for Human Rights, and the International Center for Transitional Justice. If uh, you were doing one of those psychological tests and you said to somebody, war crime trials, the name Richard Goldstone might pop into their head. So indelibly associated is he with this important advance. And we're delighted that he is, uh, at some cost to his own time and so on, come over here to talk to this group. Uh, Leslie Vinjamuri uh, is an assistant professor at Georgetown University's School of Foreign Service, where she also teaches courses on international organization. More importantly, and much more distinguished, she is a visiting fellow at no less an august institution than the Center for the Study of Human Rights. Uh, I have to put in in small print, she's also at the Center for International Studies here at LSE. But we grab the main share, I'm delighted to say. Uh, she's working on what will prove to be, I think, uh, an important book entitled, and the title tells you, Justice, War, and Accountability since 1945. Now, Leslie is at the cutting edge of engagement with this subject in the phase in which we have war crime trials. And we're asking Leslie, as I said, to speak for 15 minutes uh, as a kind of comment on what Richard has said. And then uh, we have Anthony, Executive Director of the Crimes of War Project, and uh, editor of the forthcoming revised edition of crimes of war, what the public should know. I sought evidence of its imminence, and I bring you evidence of its imminence. So though we haven't got it to sell to you tonight, we will soon, and we'd encourage you all to, uh, to consider purchasing it. Uh, Anthony has an intellectual and public policy engagement in the subject, and uh, he has his own website, www.crimesofwar.org, which I commend to you. And uh, he's going to comment for 10 minutes 
at the conclusion of the first two speakers. Now, at that point, it's over to you. We finish at about 8 o'clock, and we take questions from upstairs and down, and uh, we have often what is the most dynamic moment at uh, LSE Centre for the Study of Public of Human Rights Events. So think about questions as you listen. Uh, we finish at 8. I have uh, some, uh, for some of you, baddish news. Uh, this is the Centre for the Study of Human Rights alumni lecture, which is marvellous for the alumni, because the alumni go to a special dinner afterwards, which is strictly controlled. We've been in negotiation to expand the numbers, have been battered back. Uh, so the usual reception, which is the reason I fear many of you may be here, and that's why, in fairness, I'm telling you while you can leave, uh, the usual reception will have to be held by yourselves informally in a public house. <laughs> but there will be lots of events next term, and I guarantee we'll give you more if you can remind me of this conversation tonight. Without further ado, therefore, it gives me uh, immense, immense pleasure uh, to thank Richard Goldstone for coming over to the LSE and to invite him to speak for 30 minutes on the subject, do war crime trials do more harm than good? Conor, thank you very much indeed for inviting me to, to address this audience. I must say I didn't expect an audience either of this size or age. Uh, and, and, and that's great on both counts. Um, it's a great pleasure too to be associated with, with uh, Conor Gertie's Centre and, and, and also the, the Crimes of War Project with which I've had some association for a number of years, in fact virtually since, since it began. Um, when, when I was asked to speak on this topic, do war crimes trials do more harm than good, um, obviously the, the, in, the, the invitors knew that I would be saying that they do more good than harm. And that, that of course, is my view, and I'll, I'll try and approach the topic as objectively uh, as, uh, as I am able. Um, let me start by making two, two points. Firstly, the expectations generally speaking from war, times crime, from war crimes trials have been set too high. P people have thought that there would be some magical uh, uh, events and that they would, they would be demonstrably assisting and aiding the peace. But of course it's not as simple as that. Uh, and it's a, very, it's a very complex topic that, that, that we're looking at this evening. Um, the, the second caveat really is that obviously no human institution can be only good and be only, uh, only uh, useful and not have either a cost, in, uh, whether financial or human cost, uh, such, such institutions don't exist. And it's, it's a good time to, to have a look at, at this issue of whether war crimes trials do more harm than good. At this point, uh, it's, really, it's five years now since the jurisdiction almost five years since the jurisdiction of the International Criminal Court, the Permanent International Criminal Court in The Hague, began. Uh, its jurisdiction formally began on the 1st of July of 2002, some two and a bit months after the 60th ratification was received by the Secretary General of the United Nations. So w w what I would like to do is to put into the balance some of the advantages and some of the problems, some of the costs of holding uh, war crimes trials 
whether inter particularly international war crimes trials. Um, the topic really begins with Nuremberg, and one must go back there because that's when it all began. Before Nuremberg, there wasn't such a thing really as international criminal law. Uh, nobody, nobody would have known uh, what, what one was talking about because there had never before uh, been any, any significant trial uh, of individuals for war crimes. They, they, they were puny attempts after the First World War, but they didn't, they didn't amount to very much. And it's important, I think, to begin this discussion and this weighing uh, process by looking at the successes uh, of Nuremberg. The, the first, and some of them are, not, are no longer as obvious perhaps as they should be, the first is that Nuremberg was the recognition, it stood for the recognition uh, of a rule of law in the international community. In democracies, the rule of law was a fairly common, uh, common topic of discussion. It was a common topic for, uh, for uh, study, whether in uh, political science or in law schools, um, but not in the international community. And this, for the first time, was holding an attempt to hold individual criminals liable for violating international criminal law, and that was something new. The second importance of Nuremberg was the refusal by the victorious powers after much debate in the, in the uh, early 1940s during the war, but the victorious uh, nations uh, after the Second World War did not stoop to the level of the Nazi leaders themselves, and they were offered and given certainly by the standards of the middle of the 20th century, a, a fair trial. Thirdly, it, it provided important acknowledgement for the victims of the most appalling war crimes. And that's, that's again, very important in my, in my book. The main customers of war crimes trials, like any trials, are the victims. Victims want acknowledgement, whether in your domestic situation, whether... You're talking about rape survivors or people who've, families of people who've been murdered or who've been robbed. What they want is some official recognition, and I, I underline official recognition of what, what happened to them. They know what happened to them. They don't need to go to court and hear evidence of what happened to them. They know, but they want the official acknowledgement, and that often, uh, for, for many victims, is the beginning of their healing process. Fourthly, it wrote a credible history of the criminal activities of the Nazi leaders. And that, again, is a very important benefit that comes from all forms of justice, particularly uh, uh, official trials, but also uh, 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 truth and reconciliation commissions, which I would suggest is a different form of justice. But this writing of the history uh, is very important. It's particularly important, and that's the fifth success of Nuremberg, in making denials, fabricated denials, more difficult. The job of Holocaust deniers would be a lot easier but for Nuremberg. There was the meticulous collecting of the evidence and, and, and Nuremberg's remarkable for the amount of documentary evidence that there was. I was surprised when I first read the Nuremberg record soon after I went to The Hague uh, to, uh, to prosecute war crimes uh, in the former Yugoslavia that 75% of the Nuremberg record consists of Nazi documents. They were really condemned out of their own documents. Uh, of course, in, in, in The Hague, we weren't, we weren't so lucky. We, we didn't have documents, and we had to build, uh, build cases uh, from, from the ground up using, 
using witnesses, live witnesses, which of course has advantages as well as making it more difficult. But the, the stopping of denials is important, and I'll come back to that when I talk about the uh, United Nations Tribunal. The sixth success of Nuremberg, I would suggest, was helping to avoid the attribution of collective guilt to the whole German nation. I think identifying what was super criminality, that individuals were responsible for the criminality, uh, is very important. And I think that, 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 uh, that this, this is certainly an important lesson from, from Nuremberg. I have not read or heard serious suggestions that the world would be a better place today but for Nuremberg, that it wasn't a good idea to, to give the Nazi leaders a fair trial. And, and that, that was really the, the kickstart to what has become uh, international criminal justice. Of course, because of the successes of Nuremberg, a permanent international criminal court should have been established uh, in the immediate aftermath of Nuremberg. And that was the intention. If you look at the 1948 Genocide Convention, you will see in Article 6 there's a reference to an international criminal court having jurisdiction. It was assumed that there would be a treaty-based court, but of course the Cold War supervened and the idea was, was really placed on, uh, on, on hold uh, for almost half a century. Uh, the Soviet Union and, and China during the Cold War would certainly not have been uh, willing to agree to any international criminal court. They, 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 they didn't have any good reason to, to favor it for obvious reasons. Um, and there was this hiatus, and uh, as, as we all know, in, the, in 1993, in the face of huge war crimes being committed, particularly in Bosnia and Herzegovina, uh, in the uh, war in the former Yugoslavia, the United Nations Security Council, to the surprise really of all lawyers and politicians, decided to set up the first ever truly international criminal court for the former Yugoslavia. And that was followed uh, shortly after by the International Criminal Court for Rwanda. Of course, had the events been in the reverse order, we wouldn't have had either of them probably. There wouldn't have been a Rwanda tribunal but for Yugoslavia and there wouldn't have been a Yugoslavia tribunal but for the fact that it was in Europe uh, and that the, the major Western powers uh, were, were appalled uh, that what they said would never happen again was happening in their own backyard uh, just across the road from, from, from Italy. So let's jump forward and talk about the successes of the, of the two ad hoc United Nations ad hoc tribunals. And you'll see it follows fairly closely on what I've already said uh, about Nuremberg. The first, though, is different. The first and, and, and a major success of the United Nations tribunals is now taken for granted, I'm happy to say, that it wasn't, it wasn't a given, and that is that international criminal courts can hold fair trials. Many people doubted whether you could get judges from 11 nations and prosecutors from 40 nations from common law countries, from civil law countries, and, uh, and, and, and all sorts of systems in between, uh, that they could come together in The Hague and hold fair trials. And, and I don't believe that there is any suggestion, any serious suggestion that the trials in The Hague or in Arusha have been in any, in any 
manner unfair. Uh, the, the, the judges strove for equality of arms, and that wasn't easy to achieve because clearly a prosecutor's office in an international court uh, has, has uh, staff that, 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 that and, and, and the numbers of experts and people working in the office uh, doesn't compare, can, can never compare to uh, the, the uh, uh, arms uh, available to, uh, to accused, to defendants. But that's true of any system. It's true, it's true of domestic systems as well. But steps were taken, uh, certainly uh, a, vastly, a, a, a vast improvement on the balance that, that obtained at Nuremberg. But the, the trials were fair by international standards. Like Nuremberg, the, the UN tribunals brought acknowledgement, important acknowledgement to the victims. Thirdly, like Nuremberg, they provide a credible record of the war crimes committed by all sides in the former Yugoslavia and of the efficiently executed genocide in Rwanda. When I began as the first, effectively the first chief prosecutor of the Yugoslavia tribunal, the denials were rough. The, the, the Croats, the Serbs and the Bosniaks all regarded themselves as victims and regarded the other two as perpetrators. And of course, after the, the leading of the evidence of hundreds upon hundreds of witnesses in The Hague, those denials have all but disappeared. And, and all sides now have had to acknowledge and accept that they were both, to a greater or lesser extent, both perpetrators as well as victims. And that's very important, very important for, for the region. Like Nuremberg, they have put a stop to many of the fabricated denials. And let me, let, let me give you one, one example uh, that, that, that occurred during my term as, as Chief Prosecutor. And that, that was the well-publicized case of Drazen Erdemovich. I first heard about Erdemovich when I got a telephone call in my office in The Hague from a distraught and weeping uh, 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 American Broadcasting Corporation journalist. Uh, she was working in London, out of London, and she had been contacted uh, by Erdemovich, who was a member of the Bosnian Serb army and participated in the massacre of some 8,000 innocent civilian men and boys at Srebr outside Srebrenica in 1995. And he'd had a fallout with his commanding officer and he decided to spill the beans and he offered to meet with, uh, with a video, with a video uh, team uh, from the ABC. Why he chose the ABC, I have no idea, but that the, 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 the telephone call I got uh, was from this distraught uh, journalist. She said to me she'd done a very silly and very dangerous thing. She went with a cameraman and met Erdemovich about some 80, 90 miles outside Belgrade, and he confessed to having shot he said he lost count after he shot 70 of these men and boys outside Trebinitsha. And he said he did it under huge duress. His commanding officer told him to, to form part of the firing squad. A mass grave had been dug and the, these men were lined up in groups of about 20 facing the grave and they were shot in the back of the head and their bodies tumbled into the grave. And he said he didn't want to do it and he, he protested but his commanding officer told him that if he didn't want to join the firing squad, he could join the, the, the victims. And, and, and he was told, if you join the victims, we know where your wife and children live, and, and, and they will also be made to suffer. 
And acting, acting on that duress, he, he joined the, the firing squad. For, for personal reasons, he decided to, to, to go public. What the journalist did after the interview was, incidentally, Odemovich also drew a, a remarkably accurate map of where this mass grave was. And it was a mass grave not known to the, to the uh, NATO forces who were then uh, in, uh, in, in Bosnia. And they took the map, fortunately, to the United States Embassy in Belgrade. And then the journalist made her, her mistake. She called her London office and said that she had the video of Demovich and she was bringing it uh, out that evening on a flight from Belgrade. And her telephone conversation was tapped at the airport. She was arrested. Her video, uh, the, the, the videotape was confiscated by the Belgrade police and she was allowed to continue her trip. And her fear was that Demovich would be murdered uh, by the Serb uh, security police uh, once they saw the tape and she said in desperation she called me and asked whether I could assist. And I did the only thing I could do and that was I went running to a judge to get an order against Serbia to deliver Odemovich to the tribunal as a potential accused and witness to what happened at Srebrenica. Not for a moment dreaming that the Serb authorities would do that. But I thought that if this was publicized it would be a form of protection. If the Belgrade, uh, if, if Milosevic and his uh, and his henchmen and women uh, knew knew that th that this was public, they would be less likely uh, to do him in uh, than if it was kept quiet. To our to our present surprise, uh, Milosevic was then uh, hoping for some goodies from the United States, and uh, Richard Holbrook was on his shuttle uh, diplomacy trips, and Serbia surprisingly ha ha handed him over. Uh, to the tribunal. They'd, one of the reasons they could do it, incidentally, was that he wasn't a Serb. Um, he, he, uh, he, was, he was half Croat and half uh, Bosniak, but serving in the, in, uh, in the Serb army. When, when he arrived, and we made public what I've just told you, the, the official spokesperson of the, Serb, of the Bosnian Serb army denied that anybody was massacred at Srebrenica, denied that this mass grave would, would, would contain war dead from, uh, from Srebrenica, and they said, if there's a grave, which we deny, it will contain war dead from battles uh, 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 decades and decades before. And, of course, we, we found the grave with the, with the map that was given, and, in fact, Madeleine Albright uh, made it possible for us to get aerial photographs, satellite photographs, uh, which were subsequently given to the, to the media. And we, we got physicians for human rights in, 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 uh, uh, in Boston to exhume that mass grave. And they were able to establish that the people were killed in 1995. All of them were, uh, almost all of the body, all of them were male. And all of them had their hands tied behind their back and the cause of death was a single bullet wound to the back of the head, which is not the way people die in battle. And that, that literally put a stop to that denial. It, it was that evidence that made it just about impossible for the Bosnian Serbs to deny the massacre at Srebrenica, and of course that, that, that too was important. Now, without a war crimes tribunal, without war crimes trials, that wouldn't have been possible. Ademovic, incidentally, was put on trial. He pleaded guilty. Um, he was initially sentenced to 10 years by the trial chamber. That was reduced to five years because of the mitigating circumstances uh, on appeal. 
The next advantage of the ad hoc tribunals, and there are two more I'll refer to, the one is the huge advance in the law. For the first time, humanitarian law was being used, and here was a body of law that had been carefully nurtured and, uh, and, and, and advanced by the International Committee of the Red Cross, but never used. And it advanced by being used. Uh, and many examples come to mind, but particularly uh, the advance in respect of uh, gender-related crimes, which had been ignored. Rape, rape in war had, was, was, was really uh, almost ignored completely uh, and quite inappropriately. And one of the, one of the uh, great uh, uh, features, in my view, of, the, of both the Rwanda and Yugoslavia tribunals was this huge, uh, this huge uh, steps forward in respect of gender-related crimes, which one sees well evidenced in the, uh, in, in the uh, Rome Treaty setting up the International Criminal Court. And, of course, the other success of the two tribunals was to give the impetus uh, to setting up the International Criminal Court. Without these successes of the UN tribunals, I have no doubt we would not have an International Criminal Court today uh, in The Hague. The problems associated with them, I've talked about, I suppose, the, the good news, if one can call it that in quotation marks, because this is not a very pleasant, uh, pleasant topic on which uh, to, 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 to talk about good news. But they have come with a cost. The first is the cost in financial terms. They're expensive. The, the, the war crimes, the UN war crimes tribunals are costing well over $100 million a year, uh, over the last few years but it's all relative that, that cost of a hundred million dollars plus over a year was the cost probably of about two days bombing over, over Kosovo so in comparison to making war it's really a pittance So it, it, when one talks about high cost it's relative the oil for food investigation with which I was associated the investigation headed by Paul Volcker into the UN oil, for food UN oil for Food Program, uh, our inquiry lasted uh, uh, less than a year. It cost $65 million. Um, so it, it gives you some, some, some way of comparing. The, the Oklahoma bombing trial in, uh, in, in Oklahoma in the United States cost, I believe, well over $200,000. One, one trial. In, 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 uh, uh, so, so I think one must bear in mind uh, the, the relativity of that amount. The second, the second cost in, in, some, in, in, in respect of some of these tribunals is their remoteness from the scenes of the crime. And that's a huge disadvantage, the fact that the Hague could be a million miles from Sarajevo or Zagreb or Belgrade. Um, it, it's, it's remote from the, from the places where the crimes were committed, but of course there was no alternative. Uh, they couldn't have been anywhere in the former Yugoslavia for many reasons. Firstly, Croatia and Serbia wouldn't have had them. They, they refused to, to, to acknowledge the, the, uh, the, the legality of those tribunals, and particularly the uh, government of Milosevic, but, uh, but, but Tudjman wasn't, wasn't a great deal better, but he talked a better game. Um, and uh, so, so it, it wouldn't have been possible. There, there were questions of safety, of witnesses, of judges, and for the same reason, the Rwanda tribunal was, was, was housed in Arusha. It would have been very difficult to have had it in, uh, in, uh, in uh, Kigali. Uh, of course, the, it's not inevitable. The Sierra Leone tribunal has, has successfully held its, tri its trials, this hybrid tribunal 
as a result of an agreement between the government of Sierra Leone and the United Nations. So one, one has to try. I think the first prize is to have trials where the crimes were committed. But if it's not possible, I would suggest it's better to have them away from the, uh, away from the countries than not to have them at all. And it's difficult choices. I would suggest, I, I'd mentioned really as, as, as a footnote, that it would have been far more sensible to have the trial of Saddam Hussein uh, outside Iraq than it was to have it inside Iraq. So I think one's got to look at the political situation uh, in order to, to answer th that difficult question. The length of trials is a problem. There's no way the Milosevic trial that the prosecution uh, uh, evidence should have lasted two years. And I would suggest with respect to the judges that they were far too lenient with Milosevic. They bent over backwards to, to show how fair they were. They were trying to, to, to mollify his constituency. Uh, well, his constituency back home would, would never have, no matter what the judges did, would never have agreed uh, that Milosevic was, was put on trial before a fair court. And there's no way that, that he should have been allowed to demean the court and to use the, the, the court as his political platform uh, and get away with it. The negative effect on peace negotiations, and that's a very, very current complaint about war crimes tribunals, particularly the International Criminal Court in, in Uganda, uh, uh, President Museveni of Uganda, who referred the Lord's Resistance Army to the International Criminal Court, is now complaining that it's interfering, that the arrest warrants uh, are interfering uh, with peace negotiations. Well, they may. It's a possibility. And in some situations, almost inevitable that, that, that indicting uh, war criminals may make peace negotiations more difficult. But in my experience, they've had the opposite effect. The, the indictment and two indictments I issued during my term of office against Karadzic and Maladic, tragically still at large, uh, assisted the peace. There would have been no Dayton agreement, there would have been no Dayton meeting if Karadzic had not been indicted. He would have insisted on going there. He couldn't because he was indicted. The Americans would have arrested him and sent him to The Hague. So he couldn't go. The fact that he couldn't go made it possible for President Izzet Begovic of Bosnia to go. Uh, this was two months, remember, Dayton was two months after Srebrenica. There's no way that President Izzet Begovic or any other Bosnian leader would have, would have considered being in the same room uh, as Karadzic in November of 1995. So it assisted, it assisted uh, in bringing an end uh, to, the, to the war in, uh, in Bosnia and Herzegovina. The Lord's Resistance Army in, uh, in Uganda, the indictment, it was the indictment by the International Criminal Court that drove uh, Joseph Kony and his, and, uh, and his uh, henchmen to the negotiating table. Um, the grant of impunity, I think if one learns from Sierra Leone's example, it was, impu it, it, it was impunity there um, that, that was used by the, by the rebels uh, to, to reignite the war. Of course, if Uganda wishes to avoid the jurisdiction of the International Criminal Court, the way it could do that would be by setting up, its, uh, setting up their own credible trials uh, of, uh, of these people. So m many of the criticisms of, the, of war crimes trials do arise from raised expectations that cannot possibly met. Clearly they cannot bring peace on their own, but they certainly can provide important building blocks for peace. And there is, there's no time for me to deal with it now, but they can provide uh, a, a deterrent effect. 
and, and there is some evidence, and I'd be happy to deal with that during uh, question time if, if, if anybody is interested. So let, let me conclude by saying that, that ac accepting the problems and, and, and the cost to which I've referred, and there may well be others, I have no doubt that the world is a better place today than it would be uh, but for the rapid growth of international criminal justice. And the reason for that growth is people like you. It's, it's really civil society that drove governments uh, to, to create the ad hoc tribunals and it was civil society NGOs that drove the, the, the United Nations and countries to, 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 to vote in favour of the International Criminal Court. It's again tragic in my view that the United States has stayed out of it, but, but I'm hopeful that the people of the United States, sooner rather than later, are going to demand that their governments, that their country, joins the rest of the democratic world and rejoins their friends, particularly in Europe, uh, in supporting the International Criminal Court. Thank you. Thank you very much, uh, Richard, for that uh, superb start to the evening. We now have two comments uh, on, on what we've just heard and more general uh, reflections. The first, as uh, I indicated earlier, from uh, Leslie Vinjimiri. Leslie. Thank you, Connor. Um, I should say um, I'm especially uh, honored to be on this panel with Justice Goldstone, and, um, and, and I should thank Connor especially for putting me in such a difficult position as to have to argue the other side of the case against somebody who's as distinguished as Justice Goldstone. So I will be very cautious. Um, I should say in listening to Justice Goldstone's remarks that uh, I think we do differ, but maybe perhaps not as, I might have, as much as I might have thought uh, before listening more carefully. I think um, Justice Goldstone is exactly right in saying that the sights have been set incredibly and often unfairly high for war crime trials. At the same time, I think there's a very crucial reason for that, and it has much more to do with the recent history of war crime tribunals and international criminal justice than it has to do with Nuremberg. Um, I'm going to say a few things about the recent history, um, and I want to address some of the points that Justice Goldson made about Nuremberg to talk about this notion of individualizing guilt and then to talk a little bit about the sort of long-term trajectory of international criminal justice. I'm going to focus my remarks primarily on the role of war crime trials and the threat of war crime trials and the issuing of indictments during war and in recent post-conflict situations. And the reason I will do that is in part is because this is where I think the real debate is being had right now in international criminal justice and it's where I think the stakes are actually incredibly high and nobody should be let off the hook. Uh, indicting the LRA during the time of war and during a time when there's been a push for peace negotiations um, has very high stakes. Uh, indicting Milosevic during the bombing of Kosovo arguably has very high stakes. Prosecuting Saddam um, at a time when there was ongoing war, more or less, depending on how you want to define war, in Iraq has very high stakes and much, much higher stakes, I would argue, than something like the arrest of Pinochet decades after Chile's transition to democracy had been more or less consolidated, um, or pursuing trials in Argentina in the 21st century um, is quite a lot different than pursuing trials in Argentina 
immediately following the dirty war. So I think it's incredibly important to really differentiate and distinguish between what's been referred to as justice in real time um, and justice that comes quite a long time after the consolidation of peace. Um, what is at stake? The most fundamental values, which are the protection of life. And the fact, one thing that we sort of do know, more or less, is that the factor most highly associated with increased numbers of deaths is the duration of war. The longer that wars last, the higher the number of deaths. So it's incredibly crucial to begin to try to understand, and it's very complex, as Justice Goldstone noted, but it's crucial to begin to try to understand the complexity of the relationship between justice and peace during these transitional moments, and I don't think anybody should be let off the hook. Um, having said that, the I, I, I found myself looking, looking at the title of the debate and saying, well, you know, the political reality is that the issue of accountability is on the agenda. It doesn't really matter whether mediators want it to be on the agenda or not. It's there and it's there to stay. If you look at the number of wars, the, the wars that were ongoing or, or concluded since 1990, 49 of these roughly 82 wars had some sort of formalized mechanism or policy designed to deal with the problem of accountability. Now, the type of mechanisms that have been designed have varied dramatically, and in many cases, there have been amnesties. But nonetheless, this is a significant increase over those similar, that, that, that type of number during the Cold War. Between 1945 and 1989, only 12 of the wars during that period, and bear in mind there were a lot more wars during that period than there have been since 1990, only 12 of those wars had some sort of formalized policy for dealing with the question of accountability. So there's been a dramatic spike. We know this just by reading the newspapers, but there's been a dramatic increase, and I would argue that this question is there to stay and it's increasingly a question that's being dealt with at the time of transition, so it really needs to be sorted out. With that said, what do we know that's sort of generalizable about the effectiveness of trials or amnesties or truth commissions or the sort of range of options that are out there? Um, what do we know about the effective, effectiveness of these mechanisms in contributing to peace? It's a very high bar to set, but it's absolutely crucial because it's what's most at stake during this period. We don't know a lot. The relationship is clearly complicated. At the level of pure correlation, amnesties have been more often associated with uh, renewed warfare than they have with sustained peace, but not by much. Trials have been slightly more often associated with the st ongoing stability of peace than with uh, ongoing or renewed warfare, but not by a lot. Um, so it's really no longer a question of yes or no, more harm or, or less harm um, when it comes to war crime trials. It's really about understanding the conditions under which war crime trials are more likely to be associated with war than with peace. The tendency, again, to speak in absolutes, I think, has been the most dangerous thing that's happened in the sort of push for international criminal justice. It's not surprising, given how sort of relatively historical but really recent um, emphasis on this uh, in this area has been. I think it's what tends to happen in new arenas, whether they're academic um, debates or, or, or policy debates. Um, it's undoubtedly the case. Advocates have been extremely reluctant to speak about conditions and conditionality. But what you do find, um, I would argue, is that you hear advocates of international criminal justice increasingly talking about timing. Um, this is something that I find very problematic because when somebody talks about timing, they tend to be talking about the order of things, the sequence of things. 
Um, and the, w with the respect with which these matter fundamentally for outcomes. So when the, the notion of timing is one that is implicitly bringing in theories of causality. Um, and I think it's important to make these explicit and to subject them to a lot of scrutiny. So what does a recent history of war crime trials suggest? Um, I would suggest to you that it confirms the old wisdom that war crime trials are most successful when they've been pursued in stable political environments with high-functioning institutions capable of guaranteeing compliance with the rule of law or in the absence of highly effective institutions when they're backed by a preponderance of power. Uh, the notion that we can put justice before order absent any credible commitment from a greater power I think has been shown to be, to continue to be naive at best. And the use of the justice tool during war is highly complex and claims of success must be moderated. Um, to, to speak about the, the LRA, uh, the, the argument that Justice Goldstone make, I think, is the argument that one hears most often, that the indictment of the LRA was crucial in getting the LRA to the table. Uh, I was at a conference a couple of weeks ago where somebody who spent a lot of time on this issue said, well, yes and no. Um, the real fact of the matter was that the indictment was important, but only in combination with political pressure from the Sudanese government, which wanted the LRA out of the southern Sudan. And absent that combination of factors, the indictment would have had very little effect. Um, it's also been argued that amnesty, to take the other side, because simplistic remarks are often made about the role of amnesty in securing peace as well, that amnesty in El Salvador, this is in the early 1990s, was crucial to bringing the parties to the table, perhaps, but only after a very long war of attrition in which neither side was able to secure a military victory and in which funding had dried up with the end of the Cold War. So to say that amnesty in El Salvador was crucial to beginning a peace process facilitated by the United Nations is equally naive and sends a very bad message. Um, my reading of recent history suggests that the pursuit of war crime trials during war and immediately following war has got to be backed by the effective application of military force either internationally, domestically, or regionally. Um, and absent, absent this, these initiatives are likely to be captured and subjected to all sorts of politics as, been the, as has been the case in Darfur and may become an excuse or even a key factor in inhibiting peace. Um, I want to say a couple of words about the Nuremberg trials. I don't disagree with anything, really, that uh, Justice Goldstone has said about the long-term impact of the Nuremberg trials. But why was it that the Nuremberg trials enjoyed the relative success that they did? And I don't think they were completely successful. They followed on from a military victory. Uh, they took place during an occupation that provided the stability necessary for the pursuit of justice. Um, the, the individuals that were being prosecuted were not members of a group that was intended to participate in the future government. This is fundamentally different than the majority of cases that we see today. Uh, military force, criminal justice, and post-war governance were not only compatible, they were part of a comprehensive strategy for building a democratic Germany, and that mattered to the success of Nuremberg. Note also that political judgment was exercised throughout and when war crime trials, and here I speak of the subsequent American trials at Nuremberg, subsequent to the IMT, when these were seen as impeding Western interests, they were abandoned. 
Um, and there, there was a series of clemency programs uh, designed to begin releasing German war criminals as it became more important to court Germany as an ally uh, against the, so the rise of Soviet power. The, the other thing that was happening in Germany at the time is that Germans were becoming increasingly angry at being treated as enemies rather than as courted as allies given the changing political situation. Thus the problem of alienation which is also a risk of war crime trials, was moderated eventually in the 1950s through careful political judgment. And this has been an abiding lesson, I would argue, of successful war crime trials throughout. Um, and possibly one that's made less tenable by the increasing independence of international courts. So it's really not a matter of whether the world would have been better without the Nuremberg trials, but it's important to clarify the political realities that shaped the Nuremberg trials. Um, I also want to say a word, and Justice Goldstone remarked on this, about one of the, the sort of key theories that underpins um, the notion of war crime trials and their contribution not only to peace but to reconciliation, and that is this notion that trials individualize guilt, that they decollectivize guilt, that they place guilt on the individuals and thereby contribute to deterrence by ending future cycles of violence. Um, it's not clear that the German public reacted in this way to the trials. Uh, it's certainly not clear in the former Yugoslavia, I would argue, that the polls that have been done, especially in Serbia, um, suggest anything other that Serbs have identified themselves with those individual Serbs that have gone before the court. Um, and the same with the other three parties. Uh, one fairly quite interesting study of Bosnian judges and lawyers also suggested in, in a slightly different sort of way that, that this community felt very alienated by the trials but in a, in a way that was more collectively rather than individually defined. Um, there's some evidence to suggest, although it's too early to say, that the Sunni community in Iraq has felt, felt alienated um, and fearful as a re result of the trial of Saddam. And in Kosovo, I, I would argue that trials have if anything, cemented rather than diffused ethnic divisions. So I think there's, there's been very little um, evidence to suggest that this whole notion of individualized guilt has really been, uh, has, has been what we're led to believe it is. So when are war crime trials least likely to be effective? Um, first, I would suggest that where the parties that participated in the war are also those same parties that are participating in the peace. Uh, the, the sort of barriers to success are extremely high. And this is an even higher barrier when these wars are defined along ethnic or sectarian lines, such as in Iraq or Bosnia. Um, secondly, where institutions are weak and incapable of ensuring compliance by all parties, which is almost by definition the case in most of these transitional and post-conflict states. Uh, thirdly, where there's insufficient political will or capability by those with superior power to back up trials and to sort of make the difference up for what institutions cannot do. Fourthly, in the face of ongoing conflict, war crime trials can be inherently destabilizing and may impede efforts to negotiate a peace. We don't know, but we know that it's a complicated relationship and needs to be thoroughly investigated, and I said a few things about that. Um, and finally, there needs to be a recognition that in times of war especially, justice is not neutral. It does not operate independent of politics. The decisions that are being made about the timing of the release of indictments, the unsealing of indictments, 
and so on and so forth are inherently political and they affect a very crucial political process. Um, I want to close with a few remarks on long-term trends in justice. Proponents of international criminal justice and of war crime trials almost always argue for the long-term view. Fine, there are mishaps along the way. Um, but in the long term, there's this notion that justice will lead to more justice, right? That there's a sort of spillover effect. There's a logic of diffusion. There's a logic of demonstration uh, through the application of something that could be, be sort of thought of as soft power. And, and this rests on a very specific understanding of norm creation, uh, one that is, I would argue, not terribly sensitive to the role of power in shaping change in international politics and the role of institutions in underpinning durable support for norms. I like to say to a lot of my academic friends who like to debate this, you get to the long term through the short term. Um, in terms of what's happening out there, uh, when, I, when I look sort of a lot of different cases of international criminal justice, but also alternative strategies for dealing with this question, I would suggest that there's been an amnesty backlash. Um, amnesty's on the rise. Uh, it's changing in character, and I think that's in large, uh, in large consequence a response, is a consequence of international criminal justice. But if you look at the period, again, since 1990, and especially since the mid-1990s, the growth of formalized amnesties is astonishing. And there's a, there's a woman named Louise Melinder, who's an Irish uh, recent PhD graduate, who's put together this quite extraordinary amnesty database <laughs> That counts more things than I can imagine, but, but she pretty much has agreed, uh, well, completely with this sort of finding that the rise of amnesties in a range of different forms has been truly stunning and shocking, and it's clearly a response. Um, Diane Ortenleiker, who's quite well known in this field, said that the United Nations, said recently that the United Nations has actually decided to ask her to do a study to begin to develop guidelines about what the United Nations position should be on a range of different amnesties. Clearly certain things are off the table. But the whole way of thinking about amnesty is, has become much more complicated and much more complex as a result of the drive for international criminal justice. So it's not straightforward. Um, and as we know, uh, there are many cases where amnesty has been highly successful. Finally, accountability is not the key concern of people on the ground, I would argue. I would argue that in most cases, if you look certainly at the studies that have come out of Uganda and South Africa, the key concern of people on the ground are material um, payments, reparations that allow them to get on with their life. This is not to say that justice is not important. This is not to say that truth is not important. But if you compare in surveys the, um, the, the sort of points that people give to any kind of truth or justice or anything relative to material payments, it pales by comparison. So we shouldn't necessarily overstate the significance of accountability for victims in the recent aftermath of conflict. And finally, my, one of my um, overarching concerns in all of this is that there's a rising gap between the preferences of the international community um, and the preferences often of the targets of this justice. And this isn't simply about avoiding the long arm of the law. It's frequently, in many cases, been about the um, desire sometimes of domestic groups, domestic peoples, and states to consider alternative forms of dealing with their past that are grounded in very different norms and very different understandings of what it means to forgive and move on. Thank you.
you uh, very much, Leslie, for that. And uh, it goes without saying that uh, Rich will have an opportunity when responding to the first tranche of questions to deal uh, in, in as far as you want with what we've heard. Fascinating uh, set of ideas and observations. And now uh, our co-host for this evening uh, from Crimes of War uh, Project, I should add, uh, Anthony, Anthony Dorn. Thank you, Connor. And I think I, because I see my role here not as uh, staking out a position analogous to the two previous speakers, but really as a sort of transition to the question period, I think I'll just speak from here, from my chair, very comfortably. Um, but on behalf of the, thank you, Connor, and on behalf of the Crimes of War Project, I'd like to add my thanks to Richard Goldstone and Leslie Vinchamuri for taking part in tonight's events and for their very thoughtful discussion of this complex issue. So as I say, what I'm going to um, try to do is just to give a few um, thoughts, um, raise a few points uh, about the ways in which these issues get framed um, that might perhaps lead on to the question period and maybe um, might be addressed in some of the discussion to follow. Um, but just to say something very briefly about our organization, the Crimes of War Project, for those of you who don't know it, um, our aim is to present information about war crimes, atrocities, and international justice um, in a way that's accessible uh, for journalists, initially was our target audience, but really now for anyone who's interested in engaging with these subjects in following this area, but doesn't have a formal specialist legal training in what was until recently a rather arcane branch of the law. And the subject of war crimes trials, I'm delighted that it's the subject of this event because I think it's a really good illustration of um, why what we're trying to do matters because this is a perfect example of the way in which legal questions, questions of international law, which perhaps not long ago were really at the periphery of international politics, have now increasingly moved to the center. So anyone who's concerned with basic questions of war and peace, um, the legal dimension is important there. Um, and again, um, picking up on something that Leslie Vingemarie said, I've been also struck by how widely these questions are being debated, and particularly this question of the interrelationship between war crimes trials and accountability and peace processes. Um, and, you know, I think this probably is a a tribute to the progress that the international justice movement has made in the last decade and a half. Because there is now, as you said, this kind of default assumption that issues of accountability have to be there on the table in some way when the peace process is taking place. How they're dealt with is a different question, but they are there. They're not, as it were, can be pushed aside. Um, and I was in Afghanistan at the end of last year working with a group of Afghan journalists. This is a country where international justice doesn't reach, the International Criminal Court doesn't have jurisdiction, um, but nevertheless, these questions of the role of accountability and justice after the long and very brutal wars in Afghanistan was a very, very live issue for them, and indeed it was such an emotional issue that uh, we almost had a fist fight between two of the journalists <laughs> participating in our seminar over this very subject. Um, since then, of course, uh, Afghanistan has passed an amnesty law um, which pushes the subject off the table. Um, but in the meantime, another post-conflict country, Nepal, these issues are also rising to the fore, and we actually have an article on our website looking at, at the way they work in Nepal. So um, 
the issue is often framed in a very simple way of peace against justice. And one of the things that both speakers, I think, have done very well tonight is to show that it's much more complex than that, that in any given situation, the implications of pursuing justice, the challenges and possible trade-offs are likely to be different. Um, and that international justice is one form of international engagement, and it's difficult to consider it separately from other forms of intervention, um, and it may be inadequate to look to international justice as a substitute for other forms of intervention that may be needed. Again, uh, the situation in Darfur springs to mind here, as uh, Leslie Vinchmarie mentioned. So what, what I'd like to do, really, is to look at two questions that seem to me to come up in the context of considering the relationship between the, the drive for justice and accountability, particularly in an international dimension, and the countervailing importance of securing an end to conflict or um, securing a peace that may be there but may not be firmly entrenched. Um, and just as a, as a side note, I think, again, that Richard Goldstein mentioned the point of deterrence and at the risk of being accused of looking to the long term, there definitely is <laughs> a way in which we shouldn't exclude the importance of deterrence. This is another factor that's there, um, and that, as it were, the particular trade-off in any particular conflict between the drive to secure an end to fighting or to create a more stable peace and accountability shouldn't just be looked at in its own terms, because there may well be an effect that if you have a more predictable likelihood that people will not be let off for crimes, you know, the next time that there's a conflict in that particular location or nearby or wherever, that could be a factor. So I think simply looking at the equation on the ground is, is not sufficient, but clearly it is very important. Um, and the first question I want to raise is, is how much scope there is within the notion of justice for different approaches. It's inherent in the design of the International Criminal Court, as probably a lot of you know, that it um, gives priority to local processes, local justice processes. So international justice, according to the ICC model, only steps in if the country involved is unable or unwilling to prosecute itself. That's the, the phrase in the Rome Statute. Um, but how much scope is there in that notion of unable or unwilling for methods that are slightly or perhaps quite a lot different from the conventional international criminal prosecution that we're familiar, you know, luckily becoming familiar with. Um, if a society takes a collective decision not to go for that kind of criminal prosecution, but perhaps to pursue some sort of traditional tribal justice, this is something that's been much discussed in the context of Uganda, um, or perhaps some form of truth commission but one that has some individual acknowledgement of responsibility for serious crimes. Um, so it's, a society is choosing to go for one of these approaches, not simply for the purpose of shielding the guilty, but for satisfying some collective vision of justice or social harmony. Would that be compatible with the notion of giving some scope to local justice within the ICC's notion of complementarity, or would that be seen as as a step too far. Um, and that raises a further problem, which is how easy it is to distinguish between agreements, amnesty agreements, that express the will of a society and that serve justice, and those that are rooted in an unequal balance of power within a society, 
and that may allow military or criminal factions to immunize themselves from proper scrutiny. And to go back to the situation in Afghanistan, um, where I can't claim to be an expert after my week in the country, but my sense and the sense that I got from many of the people that I was speaking to is that many people regard the amnesty there as a kind of self-amnesty on the part of the politically powerful in that country who, um, in many cases, are the same people who not long ago were not so much politically powerful but militarily powerful, in other words, warlords. Um, so that leads on to the final point that I want to make before I close, which is, um, again, something that both the previous speakers have touched on, and that's the question of whose interests should be paramount here. What is the, the main, is there a primary constituency that we should be looking for um, in making these decisions about this very difficult balance to be struck between the imperatives of peace and the desire to, uh, for accountability. Um, should international bodies, courts, and the Security Council uh, follow their own best judgment, as it were, and try to form an objective judgment about the principles of justice and the chances of peace? Is there some general principle implicit in the notion of crimes against humanity um, that as an international community we should simply not allow people to get away with atrocities that rise to such a level that they shock our conscience and shame our humanity? Or um, should the society involved itself have a kind of prior call? Should they have a decisive say themselves as to how they want to deal with the legacy of what's taking place in their country? Um, and should that decisive say come through democratically elected governments? Or a third possibility, the one that uh, Richard Goldstone, Justice Goldstone mentioned, um, within that society, should we give priority to one particular group within that society? And that, of course, is the victims of the atrocities. Um, should the victims and their relatives have some privileged status on the grounds that they are the ones who suffered? That should they be, as it were, the main customers whose opinion counts a little bit more than the rest of that society if their wishes perhaps go against the more generally expressed views? Anyway, those are a few points that uh, people may or may not want to pick up during the discussion and um, I'll leave it there relieved that I haven't myself had to take a stance <laughs> on this complex and difficult subject Thank you. Right. Thank you very much uh, Anthony has come in at 8 minutes and 21 seconds so uh, Richard Goldstone has negotiated with the supreme leader 1 minute and 50 seconds up to two minutes, to do a quick repost to what he's heard, which means that when we free it up for the audience, we have the questions and answers directly on that. So, short, but... Well, th you th th thank you very much, uh, Connor. I, I just want to make one, one point, really. I think, I think Leslie Vinyamori has made the best case I can imagine for demonstrating the, the difficulties and complexities, particularly of, of indicting... Uh, uh, suspected war criminals during the war. Of course it would be easier and would make much more sense to wait for the peace. But that's not a luxury that any international criminal justice system can afford from a practical point of view. Uh, you can't have, either you have international criminal justice and international criminal courts or you don't. That's the choice that we have that the world has to make. Are we better at the end for having them than we would be without them. Um, in, 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 in the case of the former Yugoslavia, 
we had to begin investigations during the war because that, that was the mandate given, given to the court. Um, and, and, and it had, as I've mentioned, it had some good effects. But you can't turn it off and turn it on like a, like a hot water tap. Uh, uh, you, you, can't, you can't have indictments against the Lord Resistance Army and because they suddenly decide they want peace negotiations, turn it off. So, so the, 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 this is the practical reality. Of course it would be pleasant to be able to do that, but, but, but that's, not, that's not how it can ever work. And, and as I say, I think one's got to look at both sides of the balance and say, do we, do we want a system uh, or, or, or do we not? Do we want to continue giving impunity uh, to war criminals, or, or, or do we want a system uh, whereby they, they, their criminal actions are dealt with uh, in, in an appropriate way? Thank, thank you very much, uh, Richard. I'm going to let Leslie answer in the course of responding to other questions. We all, and now we have about, we've just short of 30 minutes, so we have time to develop a good interaction. We should have people with roving mics here and there. And what we're going to ask you to do is say who you are and where you're from if you, if you feel you can we hope you can and then please uh, a fairly brisk question or a concise observation but not if I may say so a longish discourse uh, regardless of how fascinating a number of people are already catching my eye I have uh, just here Mary Calder whom I know and therefore she may or may not choose to give her name uh, and I have, I have this gentleman here, and then I have this lady in white. So we'll take you three very quickly. Uh, and Mary, you can set excellent example by conciseness. Okay, I'm going to make a concise observation and a question. My concise observation is on peace and justice. Nowadays, the key to peace is establishing a legitimate authority. And you can't do that with people who've perpetrated war crimes. And actually, in my view, indictments uh, are very, very helpful in limiting the power of the war criminals in the peace processes. So I think it's... And, and Afghanistan is an excellent example where there weren't such crimes and where the warlords in the government, I think, has undermined the legitimacy and helped to encourage the Taliban. Now, my question is to Richard Goldstone, who I always agree with every single word he well, says. We, we don't, so this we don't question, need that bit. <laughs> this question is because I want to know the answer. <laughs> the objection that I hear to war crimes is that they're always victor's justice. Nuremberg didn't include any um, charge against the, uh, against the Allies for, for instance, the bombing of Dresden. And as a result, airstrikes are still considered legitimate, although when the Nazis bombed Guernica, everyone was appalled. And nowadays, what the Serbs say, what Muslims say about Saddam Hussein is, well, they're just doing it because they can, and they get away with terrible crimes. And so that, in their eyes, discredits the war crimes. So, that, so what I want to know is, how do we answer that? <laughs> <laughs> Marvellous. Thank you very much, Mayor. The observation and question precedent is not to be encouraged, but we'll accept it there. Thank you. <laughs> uh, as a great expert in the field. The gentleman here with the microphone in his hand. Yes, I'm uh, Misha Gavrilovich. I identify myself as a native of the only capital in the world that has been bombed by both NATO and the Nazis, so you know exactly where I'm coming from. I think that uh, both the first two speakers have had a somewhat narrow view of Nuremberg 
and I dare say also Mr. Richard Goldstone, who of course can only represent one side of the coin, namely the prosecution and nothing but the prosecution in The Hague. So when you think it's good, it's, it's been good for the prosecution. But you can't, Mr. Goldstone, also have it both ways in praising Nuremberg and also the UN tribunal in The Hague, because Hague effectively disowns Nuremberg. I mean, you have just stated that uh, Nuremberg was a success. Well, why was it a success? The reason it was a success is that just about all countries, certainly in Europe, made provisions for the lessons of Nuremberg to be part of their own uh, laws, if you follow me. And one of the key lessons of Nuremberg, by the way, it wasn't merely hanging Nazi war criminals. Two-thirds of European uh, in industry was destroyed. 30 million people were murdered. <coughs> Americans may not have the same, uh, same view. The countries here did not want for that to happen again. That is the main lesson. And the key thing there was the lesson that the one thing that has to be avoided is aggression, namely attacking another state by another state, namely Mr. Hitler's aggression of the 1st of uh, September 1939 against Poland was a supreme war crime. But unfortunately, we've now had 19 NATO countries who have done exactly the same thing as Mr. Adolf Hitler did on the 1st of September 1939, when on the 24th of March 1999, they repeated the same process with their aggression against the Federal Republic of Yugoslavia. I could say a great many things, but if Mr. Milosevic and all the 19 yeah. NATO leaders had been at Nuremberg, then Mr. Milosevic would watch how the other 19 would be hung along with the Nazi leaders, and he may have been found guilty, but he would not have been found guilty of aggression. Thank, thank you very much, and uh, for making the point as powerfully as you did. Uh, and I'm going to go to the lady who's uh, waving at me. Excellent. Okay. Um, my name is Jelena Berkovic. I come from Croatia, where I used to work as a journalist investigating war, war crimes. Now I'm a student here. And my question is short, but just so I wouldn't get a very short answer, I'm going to explain it a bit. Um, what can be done, uh, what's, what would be needed to be done in order for the ICTY to continue its life for maybe a few more years? The reason why I'm asking for that is that the big fish are still not caught are, or are avoiding their trials, uh, postponing them su successfully. National judicial systems in Croatia and Serbia are not fair by international standards. Their governments are very successful in public relations, even more than the current White House administration. Civil society is weak when human rights and reconciliations are in question, but very strong considering nationalistic associations who deny war crimes. And media are, unlike the second part of the, well, unlike after uh, World War II, uh, market-oriented, politicized, and there is no New Yorker who would publish, for instance, Hannah Arendt's letters from Jerusalem after, during Eichmann's trial. We simply don't have that in Balkans today. So what can be done to have the trials in Hague pr prolonged? Thank, thank you very much. What I'm, I'm going to do is I'm going to alert 
the microphone that we have a man at the centre over here and then a gentleman who had had his hand raised there who's now got his hand raised again. And in the meantime, I'm going to ask for comments to those three responses, possibly starting with... I think they were all um, directed at Justice Goldstein, actually. (laughs) I'd love to comment. Well, we'll we'll start then with Richard, but I I was also mindful that in the game of ping-pong, before the uh, Q&A, there was a possible need for a subsequent rebuttal. So we'll go to Richard on on the three, and then we'll come back and see whether Leslie wants to add. Well, I, I, I wonder if we shouldn't split them up. I don't want to, 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 to deal with all of them. I'd like to deal with, with, with Mary Calder's uh, uh, a very important question about how to avoid victor's justice. Of course, of course one needs to do that. Uh, th- th- this was one of the problems with Nuremberg, is that it was, it was victor's justice. And it's one of the problems with the Rwanda tribunal, that, that there hasn't been... Uh, an evenness and, 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 and the prosecutor um, I, I'm, I'm happy to say I wasn't faced with that problem it's a supervening problem uh, that, that Louise Arbour didn't uh, really started and, and certainly uh, Carla Del Ponte and her successor have had and that is their, their failure to investigate the, the alleged crimes committed by the, by the RPF, by the army of the present government of Rwanda And that was a horrible choice because had they done that, it would have literally been the end of the tribunal. I mean, here here politics came into it, and to an extent, it was a sort of victor's justice. And and to that extent, I think uh, there's a big question mark hanging uh, uh, over uh, over that tribunal as it comes towards the end of of its life. But that's the reason you need an ICC, an International Criminal Court. You need a, a court that, that literally represents the international, all, all the global, the whole global community. That, that the judges in the International Criminal Court don't represent the victors. And, and I have no doubt that if any of them come from a country that may be involved in a prosecution, they will have to recuse themselves. They, they will not be able to sit in those trials. Um, it, it's, it's the problem with the Saddam Hussein trial. It was seen as a victor's, as victor's justice. And, and, and to, to, to an extent, I've no doubt, with, with the supporters of, of, uh, of Saddam, have turned him into a martyr uh, because it's seen as an American uh, uh, anti-Sunni uh, 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 situation. And, and that's why I suggested very briefly in my opening remark that that trial shouldn't have been held in Iraq at all, and particularly not in, in the present situation with, with bombs going off literally around the courtroom and, and defence counsel being bumped off, uh, how can that possibly have been seen uh, as, as a fair trial? And, and people were warned. Many, many of us were, were shouting and screaming about the timing uh, and, uh, and the place of that trial. So, so the International Criminal Court is, the, it seems to me, the only way, the only way uh, of, of avoiding that. Yeah, um, I have I have a, a response to to Mary to Professor Helder as well. Um, absolutely, you have to have legitimate political authority, but amnesty sometimes, if it's the way to end in war, does not should not, in my view, come without conditions, right? And in order to be successful, uh, the kind of amnesty that's bound to fail is a kind of, kind of amnesty that was pursued in 1999 in Sierra Leone, which empowered, not only granted amnesty but gave power to Fodesenko. Um, so amnesty, to the extent that it is 
if it is, the solution for ending a war and saving lives should come with conditions which effectively disempower and remove spoilers from the capacity to participate in future government. It's an ideal solution. But it's also ideal to say that you never will be in a position where you need to bargain in order to end a war. So there, it's all very complicated. I did want to say one thing in response to, to the comment by, um, by Richard about the, uh, the idea that once these courts are up and going, there's really, you, you can't really stop the process. There you are. Yes and no. I mean, I think clearly much more yes in the case of the ICTY than in the International Criminal Court. There are a lot of wars in process right now. There are lots and lots and lots of war crimes. There are very limited resources. Politics are about control over resources and taking decisions about how you're going to use those resources. The decision to issue one indictment, to go after one case rather than another one, is a decision that's fundamentally political. And so I think it's, it's not right to say that the decisions at the International Criminal Court, that it has to issue an indictment uh, in the case of the LRA. It certainly didn't have to. There are many places where we can look around the globe, but it could use its resources. Thank you. I'm, I'm, I know that there are one or two comments you might want to make very briefly about the other questions before we go to the audience. So shall we go to the audience and you can incorporate no, answers I'll, I'll in that? Anthony, do you want to... Um, no, I, I mean, I, I could... I, I must have a problem getting the drift of the question from, well, from, from upstairs. I'll, I'll, I'll tell you what we'll do. We'll take a few more questions from the floor because I'm conscious time is moving on and then we can incorporate some answers and maybe clarification can come later informally on the platform. Uh, I was asked, and drawing a gentleman who's, who's now forgotten, he's, yes, now, your question. He's looking around as though he never suggested it. There, there he is, yes. Yes. And then we have this gentleman here and we'll take these two, and then we'll have to come down here. And we've found our person already. Sir. Michael Bartlett, I work for the Religious Society of Friends, the Quakers. And two questions specifically in relation to uh, Uganda. Um, first is regards Victor's justice. In the case where um, the case was initially referred to the ICC through President Museveni, would there be anything preventing the ICC from extending the scope of arrest warrants uh, to in indictments to include members of the, Ugandan, of the Ugandan army who are guilty of war crimes or could be, could be seen to be guilty of war crimes. And secondly, in relation to Uganda, you talked about the Ugandan government could, by prosecuting crimes itself, the jurisdiction of the ICC could fall away. Is it legally possible, whether or not it's desirable, would it be legally possible for the Ugandan government, what would be the effect of the Ugandan government um, following the United States example and withdrawing from the Rome Statute? Thank you very much. Certainly aimed at uh, two, possibly three of our panel. Uh, the gentleman is now standing up and the microphone is being moved in a... Yes, an next uh, way. Sorry. <coughs> Michael Elman... FIDH, International Federation for Human Rights. Um, in South Africa and in Argentina and Chile, if there were not war crimes committed, at least there, there were uh, grave crimes against humanity. Uh, yet though those countries all have a Truth and Conciliation Committee, um, which effectively has taken most of those crimes out of the jurisdiction 
of course, arguably, probably they were, there was no jurisdiction of the ICC because of the time when they committed. But uh, what would Professor Goldstone say about the possible conflict between Truth and Reconciliation Committees and uh, prosecution before the ICC? Thank you very much. And we've got a, a lady who has the microphone in her hand. Um, yes, hello. I'm Monal Quidi from University of Westminster. Um, actually, my question like, uh, for Professor Goldsmith, Goldstone, um, actually you've been uh, talking about the justice of, um, of how people or how the, um, in the criminal court of justice think the decisions are very just and fair. But actually my question is related to for a certain issue so that to go to the criminal court of justice. Um, my question mainly related to the selectivity of issues to, to go to the criminal court of justice. Like, for instance, many parts of the world, like, have nothing, like, justice have never reached there. For instance, in Palestine, like, where justice had nothing to do there, and it very much appeared to me that justice or the criminal court of justice just can't function without the imbalance of power within certain regions. Thank you. Thank you very much. I think a number of those are out for you, Richard, but, but uh, we'll take you first. But we will come to each of the platforms. Right. And then we might fit another quick round. Well, I'll be as concise as the, as, as the questioners were. Um, f firstly, the, the Uganda Army indictments, of course they are amenable to the jurisdiction of the International Criminal Court, and I think many people uh, are disappointed that, they've been, uh, that there's been nothing public uh, thus far about uh, investigations and, uh, and even indictments against the leaders of the Uganda Army because the... The, the evidence seems to be overwhelming uh, that, that war crimes were committed there as well, and I think it's very important uh, that, that there should be an even-handed approach. And let me hasten to say that being even-handed doesn't mean one for you and one for you. It means dealing with similar crimes in a similar way. And th th that was very much the position in the former Yugoslavia, uh, where, where it was a question of dealing dealing with, with war crimes at a, at a huge at a huge level and, and, and not saying one for you, one for you and one for you, although in the end indictments were issued against all, uh, all sides. Um, I don't believe that President Museveni can, can withdraw his referral to the International Criminal Court. There's no, there's no uh, basis for it in the, uh, in the Rome Treaty. Uh, South Africa and, and crimes against humanity. There can be no question that apartheid was a, 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 a most serious crime against humanity and it was declared to be such by the United Nations in 1973. Um, it's, in, it's an interesting question. I, I, I don't believe that South Africa would, would have got away with the TRC today. Um, I, I think that the International Criminal Court and, and the attitude of, the, of, the, of most of the democratic world uh, to, to, towards uh, uh, crimes of that magnitude would make it, uh, would make it virtually impossible to, 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 to allow for amnesties uh, for the leaders who, and particularly of the army and police uh, in, uh, in the South African situation, who behaved as they did. And, and certainly in my book, I, I would prefer to see trials rather than amnesties uh, in, in that sort of situation. South Africa just got away with it in 1995. And, 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 and I think there, there were a lot of reasons for that. It was the, uh, it, 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 it was the attitude of, 
of, of, of Nelson Mandela, his popularity, uh, and, uh, and it was also very importantly the wish of the majority of the victims in South Africa to go that route. But, but think the, world, the world has changed uh, since, since then. As far as uh, Palestine and other areas are concerned, of course there should be a truly international criminal court. And, and, and if there was, if all, if all members of the United Nations were parties to it, then it, it, it would have jurisdiction. Uh, I, I agree with Leslie that, that it's a very difficult question for the, very difficult for the prosecutor, for Luis Moreno Ocampo, uh, to decide where to, where to prosecute. There are unfortunately just too many war crimes being committed. I will be happy when the, the International Criminal Court gets involved in a non-African situation. I don't think it's good for the court to be involved only on one continent. Um, Ocampo has made public that he's investigating five other situations. I've no doubt at least one or more of them are in Latin America, and I think that that will be very, very important to demonstrate that the, uh, that the ICC is, is, is interested not only in Africa, but, but war crimes wherever they commit. Thank you, Richard. Uh, Leslie, Anthony, briefly before we take the next round. I just have one very quick comment. I was, again, listening to some people who are sort of very deeply involved in uh, Uganda, and their comment was that, well, yes, Uganda formally requested uh, that the ICC get involved, but that's not where the process started. It started on the other side. And I, I don't really have anything to add on that round of questions. I might somewhat rashly take on a question from the first round about the question of Nuremberg and aggression. I think although the, the notion of aggression was seen by the United States as the heart of what it was doing at Nuremberg, if we look back now, I think that it was, seems like one of the more unsatisfactory parts of Nuremberg, partly because of, there were serious doubts about whether aggression was a crime at the time before Nuremberg and whether it was prosecuting the Nazis for a crime that wasn't a crime when they committed it. And secondly, of course, that it's particularly in reference to aggression that the victor's justice aspect of Nuremberg is most stark because the Soviet Union, which was sitting on the bench at Nuremberg, had also invaded countries during the Second World War. Thank you, Anthony, for picking up that early point. A gentleman in the front with the microphone. Correct. Can, is that, uh, That's fine. I'm James Thacker. I've been involved with human rights, legitimacy questions with various human rights groups. Um, literally since Natan Sharansky was in the Soviet penal code, recently arranged the affidavits for Venunu in front of the Israel Supreme Court. Um, I think it's a huge distinction that has to be emphasized, which you have already mentioned, but to emphasize it further about one law and one state. I mean, the Israel Supreme Court, Aharon Barak, described himself as having created a human rights utopia that said to me when he was in his country incognito that um, the Israel court, the Israel government can intervene and actually take things on and off the docket more or less at will. And I fear that in America's uh, withdrawal from the ICC or failure to uh, endorse it, uh, there is something similar at work. Uh, in your case, you're dealing with one law and many against one, or many against a very few. And that involves the legal system being impervious to political intervention. Now, there, there is a story that Madeleine Albright used uh, the international court to criminalize Milosevic. I mean, this case has been made several times. Uh, you, at the visceral center of the legal process under these huge pressures, do you think an international court can resist political pressures? Did you have many put on you? And uh, I, I think the whole survival of the international criminal court system depends on judges of very strong character resisting political uh, I mean how much political pressure did you receive 
Thank you. How much political pressure did you run? And it's a nice one to draw uh, Richard in on, on, an, on a summary. We have two final people who've caught my eye at the back, who's got the microphone, and then at the centre with his hand uh, optimistically up Ivers. So we'll take those two very quickly, if you may, and then we'll go for a final round of comments from the stage, and then I'll wrap up. Sir. Uh, Nick Donovan from the Aegis Trust. Uh, we've built the Kigali Memorial Centre and the UK Holocaust Museum. I have a question about uh, Darfur and drawing on uh, Professor Goldstone's experience in the Oil for Food program. Given that the ICC indictments and re original referrals seem to have had no short-term effect in um, bringing the uh, Sudanese government into accepting uh, the UN peacekeepers or into ending their role in the killings, would you see some kind of oil trust fund where you could have an oil embargo on Sudan but have revenue still flowing into Sudan for humanitarian, education, social services purposes, and oil still flowing out for Chinese energy security purposes as a good idea, given your experience of the mismanagement and uh, corruption in the Oil for Food program. Thank you very much. And our final uh, speedy question. Yavorangio uh, of Student here at the OST. I have a question for Leslie Vinjimuri. Uh, I wonder to what extent uh, the way you framed the, the issue of justice versus peace is capturing what we ended up talking about, which is that justice may be really uh, key in the quality or uh, the, the stability of the peace that is emerging, and particularly in the context of warlords, uh, since most of the conflict nowadays involves war warlords. Uh, what other strategies are available uh, to sideline them from the uh, political process and uh, in the that you brought, brought up. Uh, after Lomé, there was a revision of the whole process, which included a very strong court where essentially the warlords are now. And this is often seen as one of the reasons why they have not regrouped like they did before uh, and reignited the conflict. Thank you very much. I'm going to take the panel now, giving them each a little bit of time, working through from Anthony to Leslie to end with Richard, and then I'm going to just wrap the whole thing up. So, Anthony, if you have any comments, uh, yeah, I mean, I, my, my general comment, you know, I think that it's been a, a very good discussion. You know, I think it shows the, the d number of interlocking issues that are raised by the question of international justice. You know, I think, as both panelists have said, it is a fact of life now in the contemporary world. And I think it's, you know, to, to pick up one of the things that, that I think that Yavo is getting at, that, you know, there's a question of how committed... The, if we're talking about international justice, whether there's a, a real commitment on the part of the international community to do what it takes to achieve peace in a particular situation. There may be a difference between trying to get a long-term, substantial, lasting peace and maybe more of a, a short-term solution that requires less engagement from the international community. The other thing is that, um, you know, another note that struck me is that international the requirement for international justice can be a kind of benchmark that allows forces within a particular society that might be too weak on their own to appeal to it as something that they can then justify and build their strength. Thank you, Andy. Um, to the last question, um, I, have no I have no doubt that you have very good answers to the question given everything I've heard from you earlier. You know this topic very, very well. Um, but my short answer is military force, right? Indictments do not substitute for the use of military force. They're a weak substitute in many cases when the international community doesn't really want to get involved, doesn't really want to expend the energy, the resources, take the risks 
that it that it requires to get rid of powerful warlords. So military force indictments can trials can back those up, but on their own, it's it's a very slow and often ineffective means of of disempowering very powerful warlords. And uh, finally, on the two specifics, but also generally, Richard Colston. Well, I'll just deal very briefly with the, with the last two of the final three questions. Firstly, political pressure. The answer is a very definite no. Um, I, 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 I think I'd made it particularly clear that, that, that had, the, had, had I been the, in receipt of any political pressure, I would have immediately called a press conference and made it public. And I, I took very seriously the, the provision in the Security Council statute that, that said that I had that the prosecutor has is independent and shall not take instructions from any government or any other person and 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 I thought that was very important and and, and on at least one occasion I had to use it uh, to, to 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 answer complaints from the then secretary general Butrascali uh, who who found it peculiar that I, that I didn't consult him before issuing the indictment against against uh, 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 against and and uh, I, I said to him, I was very pleased that I didn't consult him because he would have, for, for some of the reasons perhaps that Leslie might have agreed with, he would have tried to dissuade me from issuing that indictment during the war. Um, how, wrong, how wrong that would have been, but that's, that's easy in hindsight, uh, but, but that's certainly the position. Uh, as, far, as far as Darfur is concerned, I'm, I'm grateful for the question because, of course, yesterday the International Criminal Court issued arrest warrants against the uh, against at least one minister and other uh, other people in uh, in uh, in the Sudan, and as was expected, President Bashir immediately said that uh, this is unlawful. Um, his his arguments uh, should be familiar to the gentleman who uh, who asked uh, who, who who spoke about Nuremberg uh, earlier. Um, he, he has questioned the legality of the International Criminal Court, and really he's thrown down the gauntlet to the Security Council. The Security Council referred Darfur, the Darfur situation to the International Criminal Court. Uh, the United States declared that what was happening there to amount to genocide, rightly or wrongly, doesn't matter. But clearly, if, 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 if not genocide, then a most aggravated form of crimes against humanity. And the question is now whether the Security Council will muster the political will uh, to do something about it. If they don't, it's going to certainly... Uh, demean the, the, the credibility of the Security Council and the whole United Nations uh, system to allow a member state to simply uh, ignore a, a peremptory uh, decision resolution under Chapter 7 on the part of the Security Council. Some, some states in the United States are already divesting from uh, American corporations that, uh, that are doing business uh, in Darfur, and I think, I think that, that that's a good thing. Um, and uh, there the, the quite clearly should be, I would suggest, at least a no-fly zone imposed uh, by, by the Security Council to stop uh, the Sudanese uh, aeroplanes being used against innocent civilians uh, in Darfur. And, of course, there should be an oil embargo. And certainly, if, if, if recent news uh, accounts are accurate, it may be uh, that China is going to change its attitude. China is the, is the main... Uh, uh, buyer of, of Sudanese oil and for that reason has been protecting uh, Sudan to an extent in the Security Council but it, lo it looks as though the, the Olympic Games in 2008 in Beijing uh, may, may persuade the Chinese that it's not worth being branded 
as supporters of war criminals uh, 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 immediately prior to hold, hosting the, uh, the Olympic Games. Thank you very much, Richard. Uh, I, wrapping up now, the uh, event has uh, been remarkable, even by the standards of Centre for the Study of Human Rights Events, I say partisanly. <laughs> I'm, I'm gutted, as they say on EastEnders, that you can't all come and have a drink with us. But uh, that enables me to remind you that we have these uh, MSc programs in human rights, which is the alumni group. And we also have certificate in human rights and various other things if you're interested. And uh, we do run a teaching program as well as an events program. But uh, the questions and answers <laughs> proved quite how varied our audiences are and the extraordinary expertise that is brought to the panel discussion. So congratulations to yourselves. Congratulations to stewards who expected about four people to turn up and got 400 uh, but mainly, congratulations to the three people around me here. Anthony Dworkin, whose Crimes of War project has driven this and has been a tremendous partner and has been very, very good on the panel. Leslie Vinjimiro, who's come to the centre as visiting fellow and done a tremendous job of engaging and pushing the debate further. And Richard Goldstone for having both started the debate and wrestled with the issues in an honest and clear way and taking questions as he did, as they all did. I think we should end the event with a round of applause for them.